Hi, this is Bob Murphy, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome, everybody, to the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart. And I'm Nick Gosling. And today we have with us Isaac Morehouse, a longtime friend of LCI and a founder and CEO of Praxis, a company that helps people pursue the career that's right for them by providing a unique combination of real-world experience, personal projects, and one-on-one coaching while working in a startup. Isaac was recently a guest on the Tucker Carlson Show on Fox News, and he's here with us today. Isaac... You're probably one of the most enthusiastic people I know when it comes to pursuing new avenues of thinking and doing. And, you know, believe it or not, on a personal note here, the book, your recent book, Why Haven't You Read This Book, helped give me that last little push to make a career move that I knew was right, but it, I wasn't too thrilled with the risk involved. So uh, thank you for that. And I have a feeling you've done this for many other people out there. Oh, well, that's exciting to hear. Um, yeah, the, the fun thing about that book is, uh, people say, oh, your book was great, but I I actually didn't write any of it besides a tiny little intro. Uh, it's just a collection of really interesting stories from a lot of different people who kind of ask that question, like, why why am I not pursuing this thing? And uh, so, yeah, I'm, that's kind of my like, that's that's what I get high off of. Uh, that's what I, I love is expanding the notion of what's possible for myself and seeing that happen in other people, like realizing that you have more freedom than you thought you had, that there are more things you can do, more options, more interesting, engaging ways of living than you previously thought you sort of had permission to go after. So um, that's that's really exciting to hear that. One thing that I found interesting about your advice to other people and getting them, you know, kind of pushing them out the door of their comfort zone, if, if you will, is you're kind of the king of counterintuitive. You have articles on your blog, take the lowest pay possible. Uh, your college degree is worthless. And so there's a lot of things that you write about and, and speak about that are counterintuitive, which has a certain attractiveness to it. Is that something that you just, wh- where did that come from in you? Yeah, you know, I think... I think I would I would probably credit economics for flipping that switch for me. So, you know, when I when I first when I was like a teen, I was really interested in theology and that kind of led to philosophy and in a roundabout way, it led to economics. I got really interested in economics and I'll never forget the first sort of economic essay I ever read was, well, I don't know if it was the first, but it was early. It was uh, That Which Is Seen and That Which Is Unseen by Frederick Bastiat, which to this day is probably my favorite. And he's probably my favorite economic writer, just so witty. And every single that it just walks through all these examples of like why trade barriers are silly, why, you know, licensing is silly, why government support for the arts is silly. And every single one of them you know, you sort of have this obvious and seen effect. And he says, you know, the good economist looks not just at what is unseen or what is seen, but what's unseen. So you've got this obvious effect. Oh, if we tax people and give the money to the opera house, we'll have more opera and everyone loves opera. And isn't that great? 
And the counterintuitive part is, well, hold on a second. What's not seen? Where would that money have gone? And by definition, if people had kept it instead of having it taken away via taxation, they would have spent it on things that they subjectively value more because they would have freely chosen them. And so you can't create value by taking away. And so just epiphany after epiphany. And, and I wasn't like hostile to free markets when I read this, but it was just like, oh my gosh, now I understand there's actually this counterintuitive strain in economics that just, it was like so exciting having those light bulb moments. And so, you know, sometimes I think a lot of, of profound truths are counterintuitive. Other times I think they're actually not counterintuitive, but using a sort of provocative hook can kind of, so, so like the, the post you mentioned, uh, take the lowest pay possible. That that title sounds very provocative and very counterintuitive, but the content of the piece is really like, okay, look, you want to maximize the benefits on your definition of benefits in your life, whether it's money, free time, whatever. To do so, if you focus exclusively on money when you go after job opportunities, you are going to shut off all these other avenues that could help you grow and maybe even help you earn more money in the long term. That's actually pretty common sense, and it's not that counterintuitive. But I think if you sort of frame it up like, all right, let's go extreme here. Take the lowest pay possible to kind of get that aha moment and say, oh, wait a minute, what is this guy talking about? So I kind of have fun with that a little bit. And sometimes it can get me in trouble. People go, oh, that's just, that's clickbait. That's, you know, or else they'll attack the title of the article without reading the content, which really, you know, isn't, isn't, um, what they think it is. So, uh, but I'm, I'm, I like to kind of play around with that stuff, you know? So you plead guilty to a little bit of clickbait syndrome then? Oh, sure. I mean, my, my goal is never, you know, so I blog every day and I do it purely as a discipline for myself because I just feel better when I write something every day. And so I've been doing this, you know, for a while as kind of a, a um, just a practice for my myself. And so I don't have a goal. Like, I don't really care how many people visit my blog. I have no monetization on my personal blog. I just, I just sort of do it. And um, if if I know I can sort of have a little fun with it, and give it a provocative title. I, I kind of just, it's like an entertainment thing for myself. So yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not A-B testing titles and like trying to optimize for clicks uh, in that sense, but I have this test I use, which is the, the, the sharing test. And a lot of people will condemn, I know I'm getting way far afield here, but a lot of, a lot of people condemn sort of like Facebook internet culture and say, oh, well people, you know, they'll share things without even reading them based just on the title. And as an thinking like an economist, you can easily dismiss things as stupid, irrational, dumb, but that doesn't help you understand the world. So I always want to say, well, that's rational. That's a rational behavior. What is the reason that they're doing this and how can we sort of work with that? Okay, that, that makes sense to me. If Doug Stewart posted something on Facebook that said, you know, the three things I love most about the Libertarian Christian Institute, I would absolutely share that without reading it. Because I know a lot about you, I know a lot about the Institute, and the title tells me, you know, I probably would read it, but I would feel comfortable sharing it without reading it because I sort of get the context and I get, oh, I, I think I know what this is going to say and I, I'm cool, I want people to see this. Um, and so I kind of use that test for myself, the title test, like, w is this shareable based on the title alone? And if it's not, it's a boring title. Um, so I always try to have a little more fun with it and, and not to see it as like irrational or bad if people, you know if people don't click and read all of it. See, see if I can convey the nut of it in the title. One article that is definitely one of those provocative titles, your college degree is worthless. 
is it's one of those articles that wouldn't belong in a safe space, if you will, <laughs> um, because, you know, that sounds offensive, but it really isn't. And, you know, I think what you were describing earlier is not necessarily counterintuitive, but that whole, I think Thomas Sowell calls it thinking beyond stage one, where yes. you think about the unseen or what's what's after the next thing we do or the next choice we make or policy we enact and things like that. You know, the title, your college degree is worthless. That is a very important message. And it's probably very much a foundation of, of what you do with Praxis in when you started Praxis. I wish that I could have gotten in a time machine 15, 20 years ago and figured out what I was about to do now, like what career I'm in right <laughs> now, because I may have chosen a different college. I may have chosen a different path to the career that I'm in. I didn't get a degree in something that wasn't at all related to what I'm doing right now, but I think a lot of people would would probably resonate with that idea where, you know, it's too bad we can't tell teenagers you can't get in a time machine, find out what you're going to do when you're 30 or 35 or 40, and then start working toward that. That's impossible to do, of course. And so it seems like you've started Praxis to sort of give people something more hands-on rather than just getting an education because that's the status quo. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, uh, I similarly, I look back and I'm like, what a waste. I wish I wouldn't have gone to college truly. Cause I didn't know then. And, and the world has changed a lot and made this far easier than it was even back. What was it? 13, 14 years ago when I was in college, but I didn't know then that what I was capable of doing and that the things people value are things you can get and you can demonstrate to them in other ways outside of a degree. I just didn't know it. I just sort of was like, I guess you have to do this. And so wishing that I would have done something different is really what spurred me to create Praxis. I think most most entrepreneurs um, are trying to scratch their own itch when they launch a business. It's a problem that they have felt and they think certainly other people feel this problem. I, I want to solve it. Um, and that's absolutely where it, where it came from. And and that article and the thrust behind Praxis as a whole, it's really, you know, your college degree is worthless. The point of that, the takeaway is you've got to figure out what the actual thing is that's valued in the marketplace. It's not the degree. People assume it's the degree. But this is where, again, economics was really profound for me in helping me understand what's going on here. Like when you just look at the marketplace and you see, okay, the cost of college is going up, you know, hundreds of percent percent over the last decade. I don't even remember what it is anymore, like 600% or something like that, uh, more than any other good, even more than healthcare, faster rise in price. And the opportunities for people with degrees are going in the opposite direction. Something like 60 some percent of people with degrees either have a job that does not require a degree or they have no job. Um, so the vast majority of people coming out of this are not, it's not getting them something they couldn't have otherwise gotten. And I think that trend is only going to continue. So if you look at it like that, you're just very baffled and you don't understand it. But economics actually helped me understand what's going on here. Um, and it was actually a, a lot of work by Brian Kaplan and others, and this was, you know, maybe a decade ago, on this idea of signaling, that what is the degree? It's a signal. It's a signal to the world, to the workforce um, in terms of employability, but to your parents and others in terms of social status, that you sort of meet some minimum threshold. And I remember having this realization when I was in college. <laughs> I thought, wait a minute, 
I looked around the classroom and I went to like a generic state school and it was like, you know, where you went if you couldn't get into Michigan State, which is like a party school that's not hard to get into. So, you know, it's, it kind of tells you the caliber of the, the, the college I was at. But I remember looking around the classroom and realizing all I'm buying is a piece of paper that says I'm no worse than these people. And I thought, well, wow, that's a pretty low bar. Because that's what it signals on a resume and in the job market. Oh, you know, BA in, you know, uh, political science from Western Michigan University, you know, three point whatever GPA. What does that actually convey? Well, it, it says I'm not a criminal and I'm not like I haven't been sitting on the couch for four years uh, and I can probably read like that's about it. I mean, it honestly doesn't tell you much more. So it's this minimum signal that's sent. And once I realized that, I thought, OK, this there's got to be a better signal. And as degrees continue to inflate and more and more people get them, um, the signal weakens. It gets less and less valuable. And so realizing that all a degree is doing for you is, is communicating some sort of minimum threshold that you meet to the marketplace, because it's not going to get you a job. No one's going to be like, oh, you have that degree. I'll hire you. If you don't have it, you might not make the first cut in some hiring processes, but you need something more interesting than a degree regardless. And once you realize that, you all of a sudden say, well, wait a minute, if I can build a body of work, if I can build my own signal, and today the internet has made this possible in a way it never was before. You, you know, a long time ago, I would have had to hire a private investigator to follow you around and figure out what you actually know and what you can actually do. Today, I can look at your GitHub portfolio, the books you've reviewed on Amazon. I can go look at your podcast, Doug. I can read your blog post. I can learn a lot about your abilities from your digital presence. And so you can build a signal, a body of work, a, a brand, so to speak, that demonstrates what you're capable of in a way that's already more valuable than the degree. So if you can build something more valuable than the degree, why do you need it at all? And that's kind of the point of that article. And that's kind of the point of praxis. It's not an anti-college. It's like, look, whether or not you have a degree, I don't really care. But if you want to succeed and get interesting work and figure out you know, where you, where you can add value in the marketplace, you're going to need experience you're going to need a pro profile of, of projects and tangible things that you've done that prove to people your ability to create value. You're going to need a mindset that says, I've got to go create opportunity for myself. I can't just blast out resumes and hope I get an interview. I've got to go identify places that are interesting to me. I've got to go pitch them and say, hey, I created this for you. You know, Show them that you can do things with free or low paid work as a way to get in the door to demonstrate your ability to, to go beyond that. So all of those things are necessary, degree or not. And that's really what we want to build with Praxis. And if, and again, it just begs the question, if you can, I'm sure my philosopher f friends will correct me for using uh, begs the question improperly, but it raises the question, if you can do all that um, already, then why get the degree in the first place? You know, Isaac, uh, some other people who, who have been talking about this for a long time are like Gary North, who is also a Christian. You know, he talks about like um, how really what college is doing is it's just sort of demonstrating, and this is like kind of what you just said, it's demonstrating that you can sit through something for four years. That's, that's basically all it is. Um, James Altucher talks prolifically about this, um, how, how, how the dynamics of the market are changing and people are over-credentialed, but they're under-skilled. Mm. And, you know, in the, in the, in the past seven or so years. I mean, I, I've started several businesses myself. I've consulted for a number of businesses. But when I first got started, I had no idea what I was doing. College didn't prepare me for it at all. I, I wish I had some kind of program like Praxis way back then uh, that could have that could have 
put me in the right direction. Now, I mean, I figured it out eventually, but but I, w- w- with a lot of failure. So I, I think what you're doing is really important, and it's really it, 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 you're on the right trajectory for where the, the overall market is going. There's so many people walking around with degrees who can't even get entry level work because they they don't know how to apply things in the real world. Well, I, no, go, go ahead, ahead, go ahead. I, I talk a lot. You just keep going. <laughs> I, I, I was just going to say, you know, I, I think that that's going to continue and I don't know exactly what it's going to look like. I mean, none of us do, but 10, 20, 30 years from now, I mean, I can't imagine that the university system as it exists today is, is going to look even remotely the same. I mean, the, 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 the debt bubble is unsustainable. It depends on the government. The student loan debt bubble in the United States exceeds consumer credit card debt, which is just insane. It. I, I just don't foresee how this can continue. What do you think the future might look like for the job market or or solopreneurship 10, 20 years from now? Yeah, the, the big gap right now, I wouldn't even say it's a skills gap because skills gaps, markets are actually really good at adjusting and correcting those. They exist all the time. But that just means opportunity. So, you know, oh my gosh, there's not enough, you know, welders to go uh, help construct things for the fracking boom. All of a sudden you can earn, you know, $200,000 as a welder in North Dakota. The market's going to respond and it's it doesn't happen instantly. It's not it's not perfectly efficient all the time, but it's constantly moving towards that. And so I don't see necessarily that the biggest problem is, oh, there's a skills gap. What employers need and what young workers have are different. The biggest problem is the in, the knowledge gap, the fact that these workers don't know that the skills gap exists, the fact that they don't know that they don't have what they need. And there's an interesting study on that. And that that's kind of the, the scandal, if you ask me, is that kids, students, I shouldn't say kids, students are graduating from college believing that they have what they need many times. So there was a great uh, survey, it was a year or two ago, um, there's an article about it that it was asking employers whether college grads were prepared, you know, who applied for jobs with them were prepared on like a f- series of like five metrics, you know, verbal communication, technological proficiency, professionalism, a few other things. And employers said like 80 some percent, every category was like 70, 80 percent um, were unprepared. They said, you know, overwhelmingly that students are unprepared in pretty badly in these areas. And then when this, the graduates were asked, are you prepared in these same areas? It totally reversed. Like 60, 70% of them felt like, yes, I'm very prepared in these areas. And that's where I think the big, that's what's breaking open right now. It's like this gap has existed and it's been growing, but it's been growing secretly. No one has really realized it. And so you got a lot of students who feel really angry and they don't, they feel entitled and angry. I don't have a job. No one will pay me. I have debt. It's not fair. And they haven't realized the reason you don't have a job is because all the things you learned how to do are things that are not valuable in the marketplace. And it shouldn't come as a surprise to us. If we zoom out, you spend 16 years in a system that is designed by and taught by basically professors, which again, and I have nothing against professors, professors are good at being professors. And really the entire education system is optimized towards creating professors. That's all the things that are rewarded are things that make you good at being a professor. But those are totally opposite of things that make you good at being a product designer or a digital marketer or a salesperson or, you know, uh, an actuarial, you know, whatever. And so you've got people coming out 
optimized to be professors or bureaucrats or whatever, and they're trying to go get jobs in the real world in the market, and they're having a struggle. So I think that's all changing rapidly. Like, like the secret is out. People now understand it. And now a lot of people are saying, okay, I know this is a problem. I know that college is not preparing me. I know that I don't know what I need to know for the, for the world, but what can I do? How can I fix it? And, you know, we're trying to seize this, this and say, look, here's one way go apprentice, you know, go work alongside somebody at a lower risk, at a lower pay to start with, demonstrate your ability through projects and, and this sort of adopt this entrepreneurial mindset. Um, but I think the world is absolutely changing because it, because that knowledge is now out of the bag. The skills gap is now common common knowledge. It's now known and more people realize it. Um, and as soon as people realize there's a market gap, it's going to get filled relatively quickly. So what does that mean for the future? You know, I don't know exactly, but I, I kind of try to look at similar, I, I try to look at analogous industries that had major changes um, spurred largely by, by the information age. So take like the news industry. You know, everyone said when the internet emerged, oh my gosh, newspapers are going to die. They're dead. And they were correct. But there was never a moment where it was like, you wake up one morning and all the newspapers go out of business instantly and they're all gone. It was more like little by little, the really crappy regional ones start to sort of get bought out, hollowed out, you know, bloggers and, and online news starts to slowly take over. Some of the bigger ones get smart and they start moving more of their content to be online news and adapting. And, you know, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, whatever, the, the, the big ones that have a bigger reputation and footprint, they sort of adapt and survive. A lot of the smaller ones disappear and this whole new market emerges and like the entire what it means to be informed on news completely gets redefined. I think it's going to be more like that, where you're going to have, you know, the Harvards of the world, whatever they've got, they've got more in their bundle of what they offer than sort of the Western Michigan universities of the world. So, you know, Harvard's got all these alumni that take all this pride in being alumni and they have all these connections and it's kind of like a expensive, you know, sort of social club and there's sort of a prestige element to it. They'll adapt and survive in various ways. Places that are just offering you the piece of paper. Um, here you go. Here's the cheapest, least, you know, simplest piece of paper that we could get officially accredited for. Um, I think they're going to suffer the sort of degree mills, whether it's, uh, you know, online or, or in person, um, because now that piece of paper is, is continuing to be devalued. And the places that purport to offer just like great knowledge and information, because all the things in the college bundle, when you look at what, what it is, again, the only thing that's driving people paying the money is that signal. The reason I can say this with such confidence is no one goes, moves to a college town and attends classes and gets the entire experience for free without paying, even though they could, you could absolutely do that. Nobody does because they pay so they can get that official piece of paper. So even though they like the other elements of the bundle, so you get the piece of paper, that's the one driving the price. But the college experience is more than that. It's a social experience. Um, it's, you know, uh, it's information. You you might learn in some classes and you might enjoy that. Um, you know, it's, it's this thing that will keep your parents off your back and make them feel like you're not going and wasting your life and you can sort of delay your, your adulthood for four years. It's, it's kind of a big bag of things. But once you remove the thing driving the, the price, the, the, the signal, that's the one thing everyone's paying for. Because again, everything else could be had for free. Now everything starts to break apart. Now it becomes unbundled. If you really just want information, why sign up to take whatever philosophy class happens to be offered in the area where you live and hope the professor is good 
when you can go online and watch lectures from the greatest philosophy professor in the world for free. Um, you know, the social experience, you can go to any city, anywhere, anytime, and you can be, you know, you can go tailgate at football games. You can do all that stuff without paying, registering for classes. So I think you're going to start to see a lot more diversity. I think you're going to see, you know, um, okay, you want to network? Well, don't just show up at a school and hope that the people you meet who are all basically your same age are going to provide a valuable network for you. Think about what do you want? I mean, Honestly, you could probably build a better network, say you're interested in startups by being an Uber driver in Silicon Valley and just like asking everybody you pick up, you know, getting to know them. Like there are a lot of ways to build a network that are way more valuable than the relying on college to do it for you. There are a lot of ways to have a social experience. There are a lot of ways and much cheaper to find yourself and explore or to just be immature and go party for a few years and spend some money. I mean, you could do it for a lot less than like 60 grand a year or whatever. Um, and so you, you're going to start to see a lot more diversity and, and practice is really targeted at those people who are sort of sales, marketing, generalist. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure what I want to do. I'm not a highly technical person, like an engineer or a doctor or a lawyer or something like that. I know I'm like talented and I have hustle. I'm kind of entrepreneurial. I don't really want what I want to do, but I want to get involved in the workplace. I want to get my career started now. We're meeting that niche. That's who we're trying to serve. And there's all kinds of stuff for other people, you know, the people who would go to college to find themselves. Well, now they can go do, you know, trips over the, around the world. Instead, those who just want information, they can go take online classes and learn. There's there's going to be a big diversity of ways to serve the various things that college was attempting to serve. And I think doing most of them badly. What's really fascinating about this is the, the apprenticeship model is actually the, the oldest and most tried and true model <laughs> in human history. I mean, for for thousands and thousands of years, the apprenticeship model is, is what people did. Now, the interesting thing is that that started to shift towards this idea of, oh, everybody's got to go to college, like that, no matter what. Like, uh, I mean, I, I've seen terrible examples of where people had a good, good business idea, good business opportunity, whatever. They were entrepreneurial and they had the people around them saying, no, you can't do that. You got to go. You got to go to college and get your education. Just terrible advice that that was made possible because of central banking and government pushing people into these loans, even though they, they, I mean, they don't really care or consider if you can ever repay it. It really all goes back to the state. But <laughs> now what we're seeing is the, 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 the sort of natural model of apprenticeship, which ha has been the predominant method throughout human history, is, is now coming back. And it's, it's not just coming back, though, in the old way. It's coming back in a brand new way, because it's not like, oh, you have to go apprentice with with the leather maker or the blacksmith and you're locked into that career. Like you just said, you're teaching people things about sales and networking and how to, how to work with people and how to be a marketer. And these are things that they can apply in any industry. I think that's, that's really fascinating. Well, it is. It's so funny. It's like, it's just like right in front of our faces, this apprenticeship concept, but School and the, the sort of government regimented sort of standardized industrialized approach to education fueled entirely by subsidies and regulations has crept in and taken over so much that everyone has sort of forgotten what's really obvious that the best way to learn and really everything like you guys think about the most valuable things you know how to do. And listeners, take a second to think about what are the things that are really that you do well that you, that are you know really valuable to to others. They all came by by doing them and by being around others who did them. Or even the things you chose to pursue 
you chose to pursue them because you saw others pursuing them and were like, oh, that's an option because I've seen it. I've been around it. Um, and so it's really obvious, but somehow this kind of like, you've got to study and prepare and get all the answers right and get the certification before you're allowed to go out and try things. You know, I have, I have an article that's, what if we taught bike riding the way we teach careers? You know, I mean, imagine how absurd it would be if you spent like 15, 20 years studying bikes and hearing lectures about, you know, where the rubber came from and, you know, all these things about the physics of the wheel. And But you never were allowed to actually touch a bike. And then you get certified as a bike expert. And now it's like, congratulations, here's your bike. You dropped off in the middle of the highway, you know, go ride. And that's kind of how we do careers. It's like you're kept away from the world of commerce until you're in your 20s more or less. And you're sort of taught all these theories that, you know, even if they were once relevant, they're like 50 years old. Um, and then here you go, go enter the marketplace and succeed uh, versus just being around it. And so you're right. It's a, it's an age old concept. And in the sort of trades, you know, welding and whatever it, it's kind of hasn't died, but there's, as the information economy has emerged, all the people who have sort of been going to, to college and going through this school approach have just sort of, okay, now I'm going to try to transition into a, a job in, you know, marketing or sales or whatever. Um, and you realize, wait a minute, I got to learn everything on the fly. And apprenticeship is equally as valuable a way to learn for learning how to, to be a, you know, startup founder or a customer service representative than it is for being a welder. Um, you know, I would say maybe even more so because, because the, the trades are, are, a you know, it's it's you and the physical matter oftentimes that you're manipulating. And when you're doing things that involve a lot of human interaction, a lot of art, a lot of intuition, so to speak, being around people who do it well is is really the only way and trying it, you know, trying to send a hundred cold emails and figure out which one gets the best response. Um, that kind of stuff you just can't make up for in a classroom. So in many ways, it's obvious. I mean, it's just this really obvious thing um, but for some reason, it sort of got lost and that makes it seem revolutionary. So it seems like Praxis is a very good alternative to education for many people. What what can they expect? Give us a little bit of an idea of what the process is for the for the applicant. But, let, you know, once they're in, what does what does that first nine months, first three months look like? Yeah, let me let me tell you why you shouldn't do Praxis. This will be a good way to, to, to decide and <laughs> think about it. It's really hard. It's and it's hard in ways that you probably haven't experienced difficulty before. It's a lot different from school. So a lot of participants come in and they actually struggle at first. They have to go through sort of what, what we kind of call a de-schooling process where they're like, OK, what, what do I do to get the grade? How do I please you? And we're like, no, 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 it's not. That's not how it works. We're here to serve you. What are your goals? What do you want to pursue and how can we structure, you know, our content, our curriculum, our coaching? How can we structure this experience to help you get there? And so we've had participants, for example, we have um, the, the second month of the, the boot camp. I'll, I'll get into the, the structure of it real quick in a second, but is an intensive writing module where participants, they, they've already created a personal website and they blog every day for 30 days. And 
this is for various reasons. It's to, to learn that creativity is not precious. It's not something you have to wait for inspiration. You turn creativity into a discipline. You, you inculcate in yourself that you can produce things, whatever mood you're in and sort of build the confidence that you know, you can do that. Obviously it helps improve your writing. Um, you're thinking about things that helps you start to build a digital paper trail and sort of figure out what you're interested in, what things you like to write about the most. There's all these reasons that we found this tremendously valuable and often transformative for people as it was for me. But sometimes you'll get people who will, they'll, they'll start month two, the, the, the blogging, uh, daily blogging challenge. And then they won't, you know, they'll write one or two posts in the first week and they'll be like, yeah, I just sort of stopped doing it. Well, why'd you stop doing it? Well, I just didn't think it's that valuable, like blogging every day. I don't know. That's, that's not enough. That's not sufficient for us. Or, or they'll say, you know, oh, I don't like rules. Um, that's why I joined this program. I don't follow rules. So I'm rebelling against this. And our response is, you know, your practice advisor will say, no, I'm going to call you on that. I'm going to call BS because it's not about rules. You voluntarily join this program. If you truly don't think the blogging challenge is valuable to you, it's on you to say, here's what I'm going to do instead. Like we've had people say, well, I'm not really interested in writing. I want to do YouTube. Well, then why haven't you done a YouTube video every day? Like we're going to push you and say, no, 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 it's not enough to say, yeah, I'm going to sit back and say, I don't know. I don't think that's valuable because in the schooled context, uh, my, my coworker TK Coleman likes to say this. The only way to exercise your power is to sort of rebel, is to sort of sit back with your arm crossed because you're there against your will, you know, in, in K through 12 anyway, and to be like, I'm not going to do it. And that's your way of sort of exercising power. But Praxis, you voluntarily came here and you came here for us to help make you better, to be sort of a fitness trainer for your career and saying, yeah, I'm not really interested in this module. That's not enough. We're going to say, fine, it's all customizable. If you truly don't think writing is valuable, what is valuable to you? What are you going to do? It's like if you go to a fitness trainer and say, you know what? I don't like push-ups, so I'm not going to do anything. It's like, okay, well, if you don't like push-ups, how can we find another way to help you get to your goals? And so that kind of thinking that kind of you're not here to follow rules or rebel against rules. You're here to determine your goals and we're going to push you. We're going to make you make those tangible and we're going to make you say, how can I create challenges for myself? How can I use this curriculum and this coaching experience to get closer to those goals? And that's a really hard mindset shift. And if you're sort of looking for very clear, easy ways to, to follow rules and get pats on the back and get stars when you do things right, um, this program is going to kick your butt. <laughs> it's going to be really hard. You might not like it. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's kind of my, my pitch for like what the mindset and approach is. And if that's not you, uh, you know, you don't, you need not apply, but the way the program works, the structure. So you apply and there's, you know, the, the application process is like five or six steps. You know, you get very basic, just name and information. Then you go through like an informational webinar just to make sure that you understand what the program is all about. And you can ask any questions you have. And then you have a couple short essay questions just to kind of gauge your thinking and writing skills at a basic level, a short one-way video where you're answering some questions on video, like, why are you excited about this program, whatever. And again, and then finally you have a, an in-person interview and then we have a review meeting and we decide who we're going to accept. What we're looking for is, I call it forward tilt, like people who are eagerly leaning forward, trying to improve themselves or eager to hop on opportunities. Or I, I, I sometimes say the sleep in your car test, you know, the type of person who'd be willing to sleep in their car to get what they want. All the other stuff can be taught, you know, specific skills and all that stuff. But you've got to have that drive and that willingness to improve yourself, that eagerness where you're, you know, you are, you can't wait to get out there into the world and engage. You're kind of a hustler. You're the type of person who can, can succeed in any environment but you sort of get bored in classrooms and you're always kind of like looking for something to challenge yourself. So that's who we're looking for. So once you get in, we have a boot camp, um, which is 
three to six months. It depends on how fast you complete stuff and, and get through it, where you're building a personal website, you're uh, going through this intensive writing module, you're learning a lot of basic software that's used in the world of, of commerce. So things like, you know, Slack and Salesforce and Trello and, you know, MailChimp and, uh, you know, you're learning a lot of tools that are going to be used probably at the, the business where you're apprenticing. Um, you'd be amazed how many young people like don't really know how to use email or Google Calendar or a lot of basic things like that. Um, but they can write in cursive, you know. Um, but and so you're you're kind of you're building a, a portfolio of sort of projects, a blog, you're updating and improving your professional, like your LinkedIn and your social media presence. You're kind of honing in on what you're interested in. Do I want to look for opportunities, apprenticeship opportunities in sales, marketing, operations? And then we are shopping you out to business partners during this boot camp and you're doing interviews and you know sending um, your personal pitch deck or uh, project you've created to various business partners in our network to kind of say, hey, I wanna come apprentice for you. Here's why I think I'd be a good fit. You're doing interviews with them and we match you up and eventually we make a, a fit that's a good fit for both the business and for you. And for the next six months, you are apprenticing full-time, being paid $15 an hour um, at your business partner and you still get ongoing uh, group discussions, one-on-one -on -one coaching, access to our community and the curriculum through that through that six months. So um, that's sort of the basic structure of the program. How many business partners do you currently have and what, what kind of industries are we looking at? Yeah, we've got, you know, it's kind of a fluid number. So we have like over 300 sort of in our network, but at any given time, there's a, a smaller number that's actively looking for apprentices. So, you know, maybe 50 to 100 uh, currently, and that's growing all the time as we grow. Um, we're actually ramping that up aggressively. So if any of you listening to this are, um, you know, involved in startups or businesses that would love to host a Praxis Apprentice, uh, go to discoverpraxis.com, reach out to us. We're, we're actively growing our business partner network. So they tend to look like kind of, you know, established, but still relatively early or rather still in growth mode. And that's kind of how I define a startup. These are startup apprenticeships. And what that means is companies that are actively looking to grow aggressively. Whereas like maybe a small business, say like a restaurant, they're, they're not really growing. They're sort of doing the same level of, of business. And, and that's a fine business model. But we're looking to place people in growing startups. So there's a lot of opportunity to grow with the company. We often, we want to look for places where the founder is still actively involved. Um, if at all possible. And that's usually always the case. Places that are like as small as maybe 10 employees, um, as big as a few hundred, depending upon the quality of the experience. And the industries are really diverse. What matters to us is high growth, great culture, opportunity to be around sort of founders and, and, you know, executive level leaders who are building this thing. Um, and a place for our participants to, to get exposed to, you know, multiple facets of the company and to, to really master their role, but to also see beyond their role. And so we've got, we've got several software firms, you know, we've got um, some uh, all over the country, you know, Austin, Silicon Valley, um, you know, Atlanta, Chicago. Um, we've got places that are in financial services. We've got places that are, um, I mean, we've even have, we even have a few in like 3d printing, like sort of more manufacturing. So you, we've got a lot of industries. What matters more is the quality of the experience and the type of role. So it's, it's not going to be like factory floor manual labor type stuff. It's going to be like typically marketing sales or kind of operations generalist utility player type roles that we place in. Well, and it seems like you are applying an apprenticeship model to places that 
historically were not things people did apprenticeships with things like cabinet manufacturers or you know like factory floor type stuff or do you have any of those in your network we we don't really um it's just not sort of our comparative advantage i mean we we have some businesses that would probably have some opportunities like that but the kind of participants we attract um and most of the business partners we attract it's i think we're solving a problem that is a little bit more of a problem than so it's it's easier for a business to find uh, not easy to find good people anywhere for any role ask any business they'll tell you that but i think it's easier to find people who can come and work on the factory floor for example um or in the more you know uh, in, in in more like manual labor type roles than it is to find a young sales development representative um and so we're we're focusing primarily on those I don't know what you would call them. I don't want to call them anything that's like makes it makes like a value judgment about <laughs> about what type of work you do. But they're, they're more almost all of them are based around kind of the digital world, the information age. So whether you're doing sales calls or emails or, um, you know, prospecting, going out and, and finding new areas, new markets, or you're doing, you know, putting together, um, building a marketing funnel or digital marketing, content marketing, um, you know, or doing or doing more financial stuff on the back end with a company. They're they're more information based roles, uh, and that's really what we focus on and what we specialize in. I think it would be it would be too distracting. It would take us away from what we do best if we were like you know, okay, let's fill a bunch of um, roles in you know woodworking or something like that. Yeah, and along those lines, I mean, a, another thing that's worth pointing out, and actually we we talked about this kind of in a in a recent episode of this show is with the advances in in automation and robotics, those manual labor type jobs aren't going to be around forever. I mean, that's that's going away. The, the, the kind of things that are going to be around for the long term are things like, can you come up with good ideas? And can you market things? And can you convince people uh, why they should buy your product or service, which, which is the essence of sales? You know, I've, I've been around a lot of people who kind of speak derogatorily about salesmen, but sales is hard. And, and there's a reason why top salesmen are, are well compensated. That's an extremely valuable skill. Um, well, so- it's, it's one of the most transferable skills, too. You know, it's funny. We, we, don't, we don't market come work in sales because no one would, no young person is like, I want to work in sales. I mean, they, they have sort of, you know, most young people have like, at least when they're really young, they're sort of taught to think, what are the categories of job? Uh, doctor, lawyer, you know, astronaut, uh, athlete, entertainer, business person. <laughs> it's like this, this catch all, you know, guy with a suit and a briefcase. So, so most people don't even know. And, and everybody, by the way, every young person who applies tells us I'm interested in marketing. And I would say half of them are amazing fits for sales and they love it. And they just never would have said that. They never would have known it. it. Has a dirty connotation. They imagine a used car salesman. They don't. They don't understand all the different things that can mean. And so often the process of the boot camp, they sort of discover. Oh, I see this guy that works over at you know one of our business partners, uh, Vital Interactive, that is helping um, doctors. They have a software that they sell to doctors that lets them do like virtual visits with patients. Really cool technology, really amazing in terms of what it can do for people's health and making things more efficient in the marketplace. And, you know, a sales role there might look like meeting with uh, in person or on the phone or a whole bunch of physicians understanding their pain points and be like, hey, maybe our software would work for you. Let's figure out how. That's actually really cool. And what you learn is so transferable. I mean, I did basically sales. I did fundraising, nonprofit fundraising before I launched Praxis. 
I gained more from the few years I did that than from all my other jobs combined. Like the value, it's so transferable. Most people are not going to stay in sales for their whole life. Some will who are good at it and love it and they can make a lot of money. Um, but even if you don't, like your first job doesn't have to be, it's not locking you in to your career for the rest of your life. So if you're a sales representative at a software startup for a couple years, that's an amazing jumping off point for everything because you're learning a lot about that business, but you're also learning a ton about the businesses and the, the people that you're selling to and you're understanding the market, you're understanding the process of sales. So that's just one example of how often young people are so uninformed about what opportunities exist in the marketplace that they would never self-identify. They would never say, oh, I want to go be a salesperson. Um, but you're absolutely right. So so on a deeper level, the the sort of any job where it's just following rules, rote memorization, whether it's physical labor that could be replaced by robots or even things like, you know, just um, bookkeeping or basic, you know, basic sort of data entry tasks, <clears throat> excuse me, software and robotics are taking those over. That's a good thing. That creates opportunity. We're sort of not only are we like, hey, we're going to give you this startup apprenticeship so you can sort of have this job, this role. What we're really doing is preparing you for a post-jobs world where the world is about you work for yourself. Whether or not you're getting a paycheck from a company for a couple years, five years, whether you do a bunch of freelance gigs, whatever, you see yourself as me incorporated. You understand you have to create your own opportunities. And what matters more than following rules and memorizing tasks or specific, you know, repeatable skills, creativity, you know, curiosity, that creative problem solving. Someone who says, hey, I see that we get all these leads coming to us and saying they want to schedule a product demo and then 40% of them fall off after a week. What if we built an automated funnel that walked them through some stuff before the demo so we didn't lose as many? Here's this tool I found that helps you do it. Or hey, what if we implemented this live online chat and experimented with that for a while? Let's try this. Just thinking of ways to improve things and going out there and experimenting, being more playful, being more hands-on, curious, creative. Those are the attributes that if you have those, you will never have to worry about whether or not you have a job. And that's kind of what we're trying to help create a mindset that's that, that James Altucher concept of choose yourself, you know, uh, choose yourself, create your own opportunity. Don't wait for permission or to be given an official job title. That's the deeper movement going on here because those kind of jobs are are going away. They're being replaced by software and robots. And th that's good because those are the boring jobs, the uniquely human the thing that only humans can do is create, is innovate. And that's what we want to help encourage and, and, and open people up to. You know, you said uh, something, me incorporated is what you're trying to instill in people. And it sounds like you're, in a way, teaching everybody to be their own boss, whether they're quote unquote self-employed or they have an employer that, you know, writes them a paycheck. So you're teaching everybody to be their own business uh, on their own. And that's something you've been doing at Praxis for almost four years now. And with your first class starting in uh, early 2014, what are some lessons that you learned along the way that if you could go back <laughs> in 2014, you're like, you know what, we've, we've modified our, if you call it a curriculum, we've modified our program a little bit. And so now, now things are better. What are some of those things and lessons that you've learned? Cause every, every entrepreneur, every business owner wants to know how do you learn quickly rather than learn, you know, the long and hard way. <laughs> well, um, so far the long and hard way has been the only option for us. <laughs> uh, there's this great analogy, a book that I really love by, uh, Ben Horwitz, who is, a uh, um, 
a tech you know founder billionaire who's now a venture capitalist but it's called the hard thing about hard things and he has an analogy in there he says you know everybody wants a silver bullet and occasionally you find one so so keep looking for one but in the meantime just fire thousands and thousands of lead bullets and i feel like the entire praxis trajectory the, the the almost four years that we've been rolling now which doesn't sound like long it feels like an eternity to me um it's been <laughs> this huge chapter of my life so far it's just been spraying inefficiently spraying lead bullets like crazy uh to, to hit those targets and always looking for the silver bullet that's elusive so it all the lessons are hard won and i would say if i knew when we first launched what i know now um, the first thing I would have done is never launch. <laughs> not because, not because what I know now is that this is a bad idea. Not at all. It's that I know so much more about all the things when I started. The only things I knew how to do, many of those were things that didn't end up being good ideas, and all the pain we had to go through to sort of learn all that. If I knew all that up front, I would have been like, "Oh man, this is daunting. This is intimidating." So, in many ways, for a startup founder, I think ignorance is an ally. Like if you really knew what you were getting into, you might yeah. not have done it. I mean, it's kind of like this with kids, right? Like who of us that has kids regrets that we have kids? None of us. We love it. I mean, it's the most meaningful, important part of our lives. But there is a sense in which if I could feel everything that I'm feeling right now with, you know, a newborn that keeps you up at night, all the things you know are going to happen, you might have been scared to ever do it, you know? Um, Unless so you read Brian aspect. Kaplan's book, right? Yeah, exactly. Brian Kaplan will absolutely put put you at ease. Um, so the main things we've learned, you know, we've we've adjusted. We've made about three fairly significant adjustments in the structure and and curriculum along the way. Um, when we first launched, you day one of the program, so we had like a little opening seminar that was a couple of days, and then day one you were at your business partner working and doing the curriculum uh, simultaneously so you started right out at the business partner and what we found out with the first uh, couple classes was that those first few months apprenticing were brutal because the that that knowledge gap that we talked about was bigger than we thought so like really basic things m many of our participants had just never worked in a in a office environment before and really basic things they didn't know the learning curve was almost too steep. And we were like, oh my gosh, well, we can solve this because a lot of this stuff is pretty basic and universal across companies. Now, you're going to learn a ton on the job regardless. And that's the point of the program. But if you can come in with some of the basics out of the way. And so then we added, we said, okay, first you have this boot camp where you're spending several months going through kind of honing your interests, honing your skills, learning some of the basics of what it takes to succeed at an apprentice. And really, we're setting you up a lot better for success during the apprenticeship. A lot of the problems we were, struggles people were having early on became, you know, disappeared once we gave them a few months ahead of time to prepare. You know, we've also gone through these ebbs and flows where, you know, at one point we'll have all these businesses that are hungry for apprentices and our pool of apprentices is growing, but it's not growing as fast as businesses. And so we've been like, okay, well, let's put all the marketing into, let's get more participants, let's recruit. And we've got plenty of business partners. And then all of a sudden it works. And we've got tons of applicants coming in. We've got way more participants. And then we realize, oh, we should have been building those business partners at the same time. Because we have two markets, right? We have businesses that need apprentices and we have young people that want to apprentice. And so we have to kind of be building both of those. And we have to keep the level, try, try to keep those levels relatively balanced so that we don't have a bunch of participants that we don't have enough place, you know, uh, apprenticeships for or vice versa. And so we've sort of gone through that learning curve many, like three or four times where we've been like, oh crap, we're out of balance. We got to sort of tip the scale again. Um, 
and trying to figure out how to systematize that. And, and I would say the final thing, I mean, there are infinite, I could talk for forever about all the things we've learned and, and, and things that we've, uh, you know, improved and whatever. But one is that when we started, and this is a common problem for when it comes to marketing, when we started, all of our sort of marketing efforts were focused on what would more accurately probably be called branding or awareness. Now, I came from the world of sort of nonprofits and the, the you know, dealing in ideas, so to speak, which is what, you know, LCI does. And there, it's all about just exposure to the ideas. There's not really like an ask, an action item. There's not sort of a customer life cycle. It's like, oh, here's a book about ideas. Let's have the most people read it as possible. And so, that was kind of what we were doing was just spread the word. Let's go speak about Praxis. Let's blog. We created tons of content. We still do, which was a huge asset for us. Um, a lot of engagement on social media. But we had all these people visiting our website, interested in our stuff. We had a big following, a big audience, but none of we weren't engaging in them and getting them to apply to the program because we didn't actually have a sales funnel where they could you know, opt in like, oh, here, here's a bunch of information rather than do you want to know more, schedule a call or download our program guide. And now we'll sort of feed you information. Now that we have your email address, we'll feed you emails that tell you more and give you case studies. You know, would you like to apply? Do you have questions? Here's the first step, kind of guiding them along. So we built a big audience and we weren't sort of converting. Our conversion rate was really, really low because we weren't doing anything with that. And so we finally, we finally realized, and Derek McGill, our marketing director, was huge at this, like, we need to forget, not forget, but we need to not worry so much about how far is our signal being broadcast. We need to hear about the people who are actual potential customers. Can we engage them? We have all these people who love us, but aren't taking any action because we're not prompting them to, we're not helping them do that. Um, that was a big breakthrough, huge breakthrough. And when we did that, we literally like building an actual marketing funnel that optimized for this customer journey of bringing them from I'm aware of Praxis to now I'm app, uh, you know applying and now that I'm, I'm in the program, creating that, building that out. That like, almost, I mean, it's not dramatic to say overnight it more than doubled our growth. What do you think is your, this is kind of a sort of personal question. What is your favorite piece of software that you use for your business? Ooh, man. You know, it's funny. I do these, mon- <laughs> I do these monthly reviews of our um, you know company credit cards just to make sure everything's kosher. And we're up to like 27 subscription software services that <laughs> that we it's it's amazing how many what what will you call the software stack um how many individual items are in there um just personally on a day-to-day basis probably slack which is what we use for the team for primarily for our team communication um that's really huge that's really valuable to us another one that's hugely valuable and this is kind of like in beta, I think it's like a limited rollout, but we've been using it for about six months and we love it, is Workplace, which is a Facebook product. And it's basically like a private Facebook. Um, and so that's where our community of all of our participants and alumni, and there's all these groups within there, you know, tech help, um, practice, you know, groups based around the modules they're going through, you know, uh, questions about sales groups, whatever. Um, that's a really cool community tool that we've been using. So that's, um, that's really valuable as well. But yeah, I would, I would probably say Slack in, in Workplace a close second. So Isaac, we want to thank you for being here with us today. This was some really fantastic information, and hopefully we'll be able to have you back on a future episode to talk about some more stuff that Praxis is doing. 
I, I think this is just for our listeners extremely, extremely valuable to consider. You know what what kind of skills and competencies are actually going to work in the marketplace. Because, I mean, as, as Christian libertarians, this is more on the libertarian side, but also on the on, on the Christian side, because we're called to, to cultivate the earth, you know, be thinking about ways in which you can contribute to the market and the society around you and, and make money while doing it. And I think that's really kind of why God gave us work. And uh, so, uh, Isaac, you're... Your, your efforts here are truly valuable to society, and we want to just thank you for being here with us today. Well, uh, Nick and Doug, I got to compliment you guys on doing a great job hosting it. It's very hard to do a podcast with more than two people, and you guys have done a really nice job. It's been it's been seamless. And I don't just say that because you let me talk for so long. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and Nick, uh, I love what you said there. I, I do think there's an element sort of on the on the Christian side the concept of being co-creators it's not here's this here's this world with these physical laws and rules now just obey the rules and behave it's this dynamic growing you know evolving thing and we are called to actually co-create and so to awaken that creative part of our mind to to awaken that let's let's experiment let's play let's push the boundaries let's create value Let's create new things. Let's explore instead of just falling into a sort of rule following mindset, I think is is not only personally fulfilling, enjoyable, and does it, and it spreads freedom, political freedom, personal freedom, but I think it's also part of realizing sort of what we're called to do. So um, yeah, I, li- I like that you, you drew that connection. This has been a lot of fun, guys. Well, it's been uh, likewise fun for us, and we just thank you again for being on. If you'd like to reach out to us and ask a question or submit some feedback, you can reach us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com, as well as on Facebook, Twitter, and of course our website, libertarianchristians.com. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk to you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com.